Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to NPR, tens of thousands of Russians took to the streets in protest on Saturday to demand the release of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny, braving the threat of mass arrests in what were some of the largest demonstrations against the Kremlin in years. From the port city of Vladivostok in the east to the capital of Moscow, seven time zones away in the west, protesters swept across the country in open defiance of warnings from the Russian authorities that the demonstrations have been deemed illegal. More than 3,000 protesters have been arrested. We're going to talk about all of this with Corey Flintoff, who is former Moscow bureau chief. Uh, he's a former NPR correspondent, foreign correspondent. His assignments included Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Haiti, Ukraine, and Russia. He was also NPR Southeast Asia bureau chief. He was born and raised in Fairbanks, Alaska, now lives in Maryland. Corey Flintoff, welcome back to our program. Good morning, Tom. It's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Well, of course, you have uh, experience reporting uh, from Russia, living in uh, Russia. I'm sure you've been following these uh, latest rounds of protests with uh, with great interest. What has struck you uh, at maybe top of the program here with with these latest rounds of protests? Well, yes, what struck me was what you just said, that these are the biggest uh, anti-Putin, anti-regime uh, demonstrations in years. And they come at a time when the Russian government had signaled that uh, it was going to crack down hard on any protests or demonstrations around Navalny's arrest. Um, the, the Russian government deals with these protests differently in different cases. In some cases, they, uh, they're fairly lenient about them. They allow uh, space for people to sort of blow off steam as long as uh, demonstrations are not too big and fairly low-key. Um, if they're planning to crack down, they signal it in advance by, by letting uh, the public know that uh, there are going to be uh, real penalties for people who take part in these demonstrations. And according to uh, friends of mine in Russia that I've spoken to recently, there were a lot of indications before this uh, protest that... Um, the government was going to make a uh, make an example of people who were caught during the protests, and that's why they arrested 3,000 people. I think, you know, if we go by some crackdowns in the past, we're going to find that some of those people get very severe uh, prison sentences and, and fines and that kind of thing, just to, to make sure that everybody knows that uh, protesting now is a dangerous thing to do. Is it, does it seem to be centrally organized or more organic? It seemed to have been very widespread, uh, you know, very remote areas participated. Absolutely. I mean, that's another feature of protests in Russia. It's such a big country, and the political situation is so oppressive that um, almost the only way that people can do successful resistance is in a decentralized way. So almost every city has its own uh, loose organization of protesters and protest groups. Uh, and they, they range from, you know, old communists to uh, young business people who feel that the government is ripping them off. Um, so these things, and you know, the Russians have become very adept at using social media to organize these things. Um, you know, in this in this case, they used social media to urge people to turn out. Reminded people that uh, the only way to have a successful uh, opposition demonstration is to have so many people that they simply overwhelm the ability of the police to control them. 
Are there, uh, of course, there's state-run media. Are there other media outlets? Not really. I mean, the other, the, one of the things that, that uh, Vladimir Putin has done in the course of his control of the government was to uh, rather quickly move to take control of all significant media in the country. Um, there were already state-run uh, television and, and radio channels, but um, there were some private uh, news outlets that uh, the regime took over early on. So, you know, the overall impression to an average Russian is that there's a, a big media landscape in Russia. You know, there's everything from um, entertainment and reality TV and quiz shows and uh, lots and lots of sports uh, to um, uh, state-run um political news and uh, that kind of thing. You can turn to all these different channels, but uh, they're all directly or indirectly controlled by the government. So what you will hear is just a different version of the government line. Uh, tell us about Alexei Navalny. His, his, his arrest, uh, I think, sparked all of this. Yes, absolutely so. Well, I guess the best way to describe him now is that he's a, an anti-corruption activist. He is, uh, his political title, he's the head of uh, a party called the Russia of the Future Party. He's a, a lawyer by training. Um, he's been a thorn in the side of the Putin regime for the past dozen years or so. Um, he's been a political candidate. Um, he is probably most effective as a documentarian, and he documents corruption by various prominent members of the Putin regime. Um, you know, in fact, one of the big things that, that happened after his return to Russia uh, and his arrest was that uh, he released a documentary that hit directly at Putin himself, which is something that... Uh, Opposition figures have not dared to do very much in the past. Uh, he produced a, a long documentary uh, about Putin's, uh, it's called Putin's Palace, uh, as described as the biggest bribe in history. Uh, and what it does is document uh, a palace complex on the Black Sea in southern Russia that consists of palatial buildings, uh, pools, an underground hockey rink, a uh, nightclub with a stripper pole on the dais, and, uh, you know, the usual thing that, that these very wealthy places have, movie theaters and all that kind of thing, um, and a winery, a rather extensive <laughs> winery. And this is all, this is, Putin actually has, has and does use this palace as a residence, uh, but uh, he claims that he doesn't own it, and in fact that it, it doesn't profit him or his family in any way. But the uh, the documentary uses everything from drone footage to uh, plans and diagrams for this palace to testimony by people who've worked on it and architects and so forth. Um, to show, you know, this incredibly opulent and garish building that's worth said to be worth more than a billion dollars and is the symbol, Navalny says, of, of Putin's corruption. Uh, this uh, this documentary seems to have been seen by a lot of people. It seems to have been 
a key in, in, in the fact that so many people came out and protest. Yes, absolutely. You know, it's not the first time that he's done this, but it's, it's the most extensive time, I think. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, the, the whole purpose is for Russian people to see how their, their money is being stolen and how it's being spent. Um, you know, the, for people, say, in a big city like Moscow or St. Petersburg, life is not bad. Um, it, you know, if you look at, at the streets of Moscow, you see something that looks pretty much like a, a regular European city where, you know, people go to cafes and, and work in IT industry and, and that kind of thing. But for people in, in much of the heartland of Russia and, and smaller cities, life is very hard. And, uh, you know, for someone to, to see that uh, public officials are, you know, spending, living these luxurious lifestyles is pretty hard to take when, when people are just barely eking along. Um, let me read this. Uh, this is from Politico. They're quoting Hudson Institute's Nate Sibley. Uh, this is what he says. Uh, Russian opposition activists, according to him, never ask for help with regime change. What they always ask for is that Western governments stop laundering money for Putin's regime. So focus on corruption. Yes, that is absolutely true. And I mean, it's, it strikes hard <laughs> places like Britain and the United States uh, where Russian money has been invested, and I put that in quotes, uh, you know, in ways that make it utterly untransparent. Uh, London is notorious as a place where um, Russian oligarchs have bought um, incredibly expensive mansions and properties and uh, real estate, some of which they never even use. It's just a way to park stolen money uh, in a way that it can can later be laundered. And the same is true of New York City. You know, uh, there's a lot of Russian money in, in New York and in Florida, where that's that's been invested in in real estate and various businesses and so forth, um, and it's absolutely untransparent. Uh, once it's over here, it's a it's a way for the Russians to they they can even take it from here, put it into a shell company, and reinvest it in Russia, where they can get their hands on it immediately. But um, the chains of ownership and uh, uh, and transfer at bank transfers and that kind of thing help insulate the fact that this money is just flat stolen. Mm. Uh, so opposition leaders, I guess they're focusing on really uh, the, the key point of leverage, right? Because they're, they're, they're probably going to be unsuccessful in changing things by democratic means. Uh, drawing up the money would help their cause, I guess. It would, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that you can dry up the money because the, the, the scale of corruption in the Putin regime is so enormous, and that money has been spread around the world and, and cashed away in places from Dubai to uh, Macau to uh, you know to Cyprus and places like that, where I think that uh, the oligarchs and the corrupt officials will always have access to some enormous amount of money, no matter what happens. But um, I think that one of the important things is um, is the fear among oligarchs and corrupt officials that um, their money could be frozen or uh, could be taken away 
or that they could be sanctioned, uh, be prevented from traveling to Britain or to uh, the United States and enjoying their ill-gotten wealth. So, um, you know, I think it does have an effect in that sense that it that it, it may prevent them from, from being even more blatant than they are now. Well, let's uh, take a break. Before we go to break, uh, Corey Flintoff, uh, want to... Uh We'll put in a shameless plug for uh, student interns at, at UPR um, since we got you on the phone. And thank you so much for, for your support with this. In fact, we have a Corey Flintoff student intern fund, and uh, people can contribute to this. Uh, so, so tell us why you're invested in, in student reporters. Well, I mean, we've just been talking about how important it is to have basically to have independent news media. And in so many parts of the world, people don't even know what it's like to have independent news media. But we do, and it's it's so important for us to preserve that and to see to it that there's a, a younger generation of young reporters and journalists who are coming online who will be able to carry on this tradition of independent, uh, honest reporting. And I think this internship... <laughs> If I say so myself, is a wonderful way to do that. Well, thank you so much for your support, lending your your name and energy to this. And uh, folks listening, you can support this. Um, go to upr.org, upr.org, and uh, click on the link. Or you can go to the link directly by uh, searching for UPR Flintoff Fund. And uh, whatever you can contribute will really help. Uh, it's It helps UPR. Helps uh, you get the get the news, and it helps to train some uh, the new generation of reporters. So so thanks very much. UPR.org, or search UPR Flint uh, Fund. Well, we'll uh, go to break, and then we'll have much more. We're uh, taking uh, a snapshot, uh, getting some context on the situation now in Russia, with uh, former NPR Moscow bureau chief for Corey Flintoff. More following this. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour, is former NPR Moscow bureau chief Corey Flintoff, and we're talking about situation in Russia. On Saturday, as you know, tens of thousands of Russians took to the streets in protest to demand the release of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. More than 3,000 protesters were arrested, and uh, Corey Flintoff is a former NPR foreign correspondent, uh, had assignments in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Haiti, Ukraine, and Russia. Uh, so, Kurt Flutov, uh, just on a personal note, do you, uh, maybe in times like this, do you, do you miss reporting? I miss Russia, to tell you the truth, very much so. Um, I miss um, the kind of um, spirit and bravery that uh, those opposition protesters showed on Saturday um, and have shown uh, over and over again over the years um, – I, I first got there in 2012 uh, when there was another series of very big and rather surprising demonstrations by people in in Moscow and, and St. Petersburg particularly. Um, and that was after, um, as, as you recall, uh, that Vladimir Putin uh, served a term as prime minister. It was a way of getting around the term limits on uh, the Russian presidency. Um, but at the end of that term, he announced that he and his then puppet president, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, 
we're going to just trade places, basically, and Putin would become president again. Of course, there was going to be an election, but um, it was pretty much uh, a done deal. And people were outraged at this. They were outraged at the sheer arrogance of the fact that these leaders would, would simply state that this is how it's going to be. And so tens of thousands of people turned out in the streets in the, in the wintertime in Moscow and St. Petersburg and some of the other major cities and um, did this absolutely surprising uh, revolution, or not revolution, but, uh, but resistance. And, and it was known, uh, I say revolution because it was known in some places as the Mink Revolution, because it involved a lot of middle class and upper middle class people took part in this. And uh, in the winter, of course, uh, middle class uh, Russian women still wear a lot of fur. So you saw, saw a lot of women walking around on the picket lines and so forth with wearing fur coats. But that... Uh, was an indication of how seriously, uh, how serious, and how far-reaching this opposition was. That it was uh, not just the intelligentsia, but it was business people, it was uh, academic people, it was students. Um, it was very widespread, and it threw a big scare into the Kremlin leadership. Um, after that, they started cracking down much more seriously on these demonstrations. And um, that's where we started to see retribution um, against uh, the various opposition leaders. And, of course, that included Alexei Navalny. Uh, I want to talk a bit about uh, his poisoning. Uh, I guess if I'm an opposition leader, a prominent one, uh, <laughs> maybe you can just expect to, to get poisoned. Um, it's it, it, And I understand uh, he, he only survived this, uh, the fact that he was able to divert his plane and get get uh, very fast uh, medical help. Yes, uh, Navalny was off on an organizing trip in uh, in eastern Russia, and uh, he, on his way back, on his flight back, he was stricken by these symptoms that uh, seemed very much like poisoning. So they landed the plane. Uh, EMTs got to the plane and treated him, got him into a hospital, and. Uh, uh, at that point, no one was willing to say what was wrong with him, but it was arranged for him to get a medevac to Berlin, and doctors there identified what he had as as a poisoning, and they, they also identified the agent as um, something that's related to a nerve agent called Novichok. And you may recall we heard about Novichok because it was a poison that was used to attack uh, a Russian double agent in Britain, a man named Sergei um, Skripal, and his daughter Yulia, who were uh, poisoned with this stuff. There's a lot of significance to the fact that um, the poisoners use these rather exotic uh, poisons. Novichok is something that was developed during the Soviet period. Um, it's, a, it's a nerve agent. It was a, a to be used in uh, chemical warfare, um, but uh, the fact that it's been used on Russian dissidents uh, is, is a clear indication that these poisonings and these attacks were approved at the very highest levels of the Russian government. And that's kind of a mafia signifier. You know, it's a way of saying, 
Now, there's no way to trace this to us, but anybody who knows anything knows that somebody who uses a Soviet-grade uh, nerve agent um, has connections to the top of the Russian government. So, as you say, it's sending a message through through the, the use of this kind of poison. Absolutely. Yeah. As you say, uh, you know, the Kremlin denies all these uh, poisonings, but I, I guess, it's, I don't know, understood in Russia that it probably is the Kremlin? Uh, yeah, I think very clearly so. Uh, you have to th- go back to that media landscape in Russia, though, and um, realize that since most people get their news from from Kremlin-approved sources, um, most people are not even aware of, of what's happened, um, I would say. Uh, they don't see it on the television news. If they do see it... Um, they see a, a version that says, yeah, well, this guy, Navalny, uh, has claimed that it was a, a poisoning, but uh, there's no proof of it. And uh, the government and the doctors involved have denied that there was any symptom of poisoning, that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, people don't have a real, people who don't have a lot of access to the internet and who are not inclined to listen to opposition um, news sources tend not to know about this. Mm. Uh, they're in the importance of a, of a free press, right? Yeah, absolutely so. Um, you know, the free press now uh, in Russia consists of organizations and reporters who've largely left the country. Um, there are some news outlets that operate now in uh, Lithuania and uh, Latvia, uh, because it's it's the only safe place for them, and they're but they're able to do their work on the internet and make it available there. Uh, Putin's uh, playbook seems to be and this is my characterization. Um, you know, when he when accusations are leveled against him, uh, it tends to say, well, yeah, you know, I'm not a saint, right? Uh, but but nobody is. Everybody's bad, and and besides, how can we know what's true? Absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, the saying in Russia is, you know, that the purpose of, of the government's propaganda is not to make you believe certain things. It's to make you not believe anything, and more importantly, not to do anything. Um, so uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of some troubling parallels creeping up in the West. I don't know if you're seeing some of these parallels. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, control of the media is uh, is a key thing, you know. And I mean, we see um, you know divisions. We, we've seen divisions uh, now for almost a decade in in news media in the United States, um, and it's gotten to the point where you know part of the a big part of the division, I think, political division in the United States, is based on what news media people follow. So um, you know. Although, you know, we have a free press, we don't have the Russian situation. Um, you know, I mean, we're almost um, self-selecting, you know, to choose different news media and to believe, to live in different spheres of information. Of course, Russia, um, you know, like some totalitarian states uh, or dictatorships, uh, you know, has a veneer of democracy, Yes, it absolutely does. And um, that was one of the the hallmarks of Putin's early success, 
is that um, he was able to to create and sustain what on the surface can look very much like um, a free society. That is to say, you know, they have regular elections. Uh, there's a big turnout in those elections. For the most part, people are not forced to, to vote one way or another. Um, there's a lot of ways to manipulate the results of elections um, without doing it overtly and telling people you must vote for so-and-so. There's uh, what's known as a systemic opposition. Um, that is to say there are there are about four parties that are, are more or less approved by the government um, that run in opposition to Putin's United Russia Party. Um, they never attain much political power, but at least they look good on the ballot because they provide what appears to be a choice. You know, and as I said, there's uh, what appears to be a choice in news media that you can choose from. Um, you know, and there are a lot of things that, that um, you know, appear to follow the same things you'd find in a European or an American political situation, but it's simply a facade for the most part. Uh, and so, uh, I, I, as I said before, at least this one expert is saying what what the ask from protesters or from opposition leaders, the biggest ask is dry up the money, you know, stop the money laundering. Uh, what did protesters do on the street from past protests that you've been in the country for and maybe for this one? Um, do they, at base, do they want regime change? Do they want change in the system, do you think? Well, there's a you know there's a built-in bias in um, in Russia against change and in favor of stability, and in some ways that came from the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union, you know, here was a system that had lasted for seventy some years. Um, people didn't necessarily liked it, like it, but they were used to it, and um, in their minds, the Soviet Union had gotten them through. Um, economic crises that had gotten them through uh, the struggles of the Second World War. Um, and so they saw it as a source of stability and even pride, uh, and especially pride. I mean, you know, the Soviet Union did have achievements like its achievements in space that were, uh, you know, really notable. Um, so people then in the in the early 90s saw this whole system collapse underneath them. And so, and, and people, you know, endured really terrible economic hardship during that period, you know, a period of real chaos. Um, so now there's a strong bias towards stability, and uh, Putin's United Russia Party makes that case every time there's an election. Vote for stability. Vote for the people you know. Um, you know, so even people who are opponents of the government, like Navalny, um, tend to emphasize uh, um, cleaning up the government, getting rid of this terrible corruption, as opposed to uh, putting in a new government. You uh, you talked a little bit about earlier uh, characterizing the Russian people. I wonder if you do a little bit more. You lived in Russia. You say you miss Russia. Uh, seem to be talking about the you know the the average Russian that you would interact with. Uh, tell us about them. You know what I miss so much about uh, the the Russians is that you know they have this wonderful uh, mordant sense of humor. You know this sort of stinging uh, sense of humor that um, 
I think has grown out of the fact that, you know, the Russian people have endured so much over the centuries, you know, that they've developed this, um, this kind of sense of humor and this attitude um, of resilience. And it, it's sort of exemplified by um, the, the run-up to these, these big demonstrations, the latest big demonstrations. Russians are great at creating funny memes that uh, make fun of the government and even do it without, um, without going quite far enough to get into trouble, but enough so that everybody in the society knows exactly what you're laughing at. Um, and they also, there's a kind of, uh, kind of solidarity that's grown out of, this, out of these memes and out of this humor. Um, remember, Pussy Riot was a big part of that um, that type of opposition you know they you know they staged these sort of funny or outrageous um uh, happenings in in various parts of the capital that were making fun of uh of the government um and in fact um before this latest uh um set of uh demonstrations in the, the big cities um Nadezhda Talakonikova, who was one of the members of, of Pussy Riot, did um, a little colloquium or a little seminar on how to behave if you get arrested by the police. Um, and she lays out in very clear terms what, um, what you should do if you're arrested, what your legal rights are, what the Constitution says the police have to do, um, you know how you should behave, how you should restrain yourself, not to not to um, uh, get yourself into a, a violent situation if possible. And as she's doing this, she's sitting there and she's dressed in something that looks like sort of a Russian schoolgirl costume with a little pinafore, and she has a giant collar around her neck with big punk spikes on it, and she's wearing strange makeup, and she's speaking to the to people in the clearest, most um, legally supported words you can think of. It's just a wonderful moment, and it's gotten a lot of hits on, uh, on uh, I believe that one is on YouTube. Um, in another case, uh, there were some teenagers who were on TikTok who were conducting a little language seminar for uh, other teenagers who might be arrested in the protest, and the object was to make them be able to sound like Americans. So uh, there's a there's a girl on the TikTok who's um, teaching different phrases that you're supposed to be able to say, say to the police, such as "I am an American," uh, "I will call my lawyer," uh, "You're violating my civil rights," and uh, by doing this, by by convincing the police somehow that you're an American, they'll let you alone and they won't arrest you. <laughs> Um, what else do we get wrong thinking about uh, Russia, I guess, in general, and, and Russians? Well, <laughs> that's, that's a tough question, I mean, because in so many different ways, uh, I mean, we do get a lot of things wrong. I mean, I think, you know, people of my generation, my older generation, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer, so, you know, I tend to... People in my generation tend to think of Russians in the Soviet way. Um, you know, we, we tend to remember the Cold War and, and the sort of notion that Russia is a gray, uh, you know, Soviet brutalist expanse. 
dance, you know, that's very oppressive and all that. And um, that certainly, that wasn't entirely true at the time, and it's not true today. You know, I mean, you know, there's a lot of lot of joy among people in Russia. Russia are, Russians are, um, are extremely family-oriented oriented people. They're... Um, they they love to have parties. They you know they love to entertain. Um, they're very generous. Um, you know, and people tend to show a lot of reserve on the street. That is, and you know, the myth is that Russians don't smile. Well, they don't tend to smile so much on the street. They don't smile among strangers, but among their family and friends, they smile all the time. You know, they're they're really. Um, you know, a very social uh, people, and I think one of the one of the probably only good legacies of communism is that uh, people tend there. There's a big self-help system among Russians. That is to say that that people help each other and cooperate and um, lend each other money if it's needed and that kind of thing. Out completely outside of whatever the government may do. If you just joined us, we're talking with Corey Flintoff. He is a former NPR Moscow bureau chief, and uh, we're getting his uh, expertise uh, put in context to the latest uh, round of protests in Russia. Uh, big round, uh, tens of thousands of Russians uh, took to the streets on Saturday. More than 3,000 protesters have been arrested, uh, demanding the release of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Uh, so, Corey Flintoff, before we go to break again, um, your plug for student reporting. It's uh, we're, we're trying to get some money for the Corey Flintoff Student Intern Fund at UPR. And again, thank you for that. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's something that's very dear to my heart, and, and I think it should be dear to the nation's heart because we need to train the next generation of young reporters. So uh, the place to go, upr.org, upr.org. And uh, click on the link and uh, give whatever you can. It will help the reporters to learn and uh, prepare the next generation of reporters. It'll help UPR. It'll help you because we rely on student reporters to to bring you the news as well. Uh, you can also go directly to the uh, to the link uh, to the fund by just uh, searching for UPR Flintoff Fund. So either of those uh, methods. It's the Corey Flintoff Student Intern Fund at Utah Public Radio. Uh, we'll be back with our final segment with Corey Flintoff following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Tens of thousands of Russians took to the streets in protest on Saturday to demand the release of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Uh, more than 3,000 protesters have been arrested uh, to date. And we're talking about the situation in Russia right now with uh, former NPR Moscow bureau chief Corey Flintoff. Uh, so, Corey Flintoff, uh, what leverage does the West have? Uh, do you think it's, uh, you know, it seems like Putin can usually wait out any sanctions or or whatever the West uh, does. You know, for example, annex Crimea and there were sanctions and and etc. But uh, seems to have survived that and uh, the various poisonings of opposition leaders and their sometimes sanctions. Uh, what what what's the best leverage the West has? You know, that's you know that's true. It may. Putin may have arrived at the point where he's almost sanction-proof at this point because um, he's been sanctioned so so severely, and you know he has a he has a certain amount of protection, and that is the the resource wealth of Russia. Even when uh, oil prices are down, 
Russia still has a steady source of income from its uh, oil and gas resources. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's internal. He doesn't depend too much on uh, outside commerce uh, for that particular revenue stream. So, um, you know, the country can, can survive uh, for long periods of time, even when, um, you know, Russian certain Russian officials are sanctioned or when certain kinds of commerce with Russia are sanctioned. Uh, beyond a certain point, it doesn't make an awful lot of difference. Um, there are indications, you know, that uh, the Biden administration will be much tougher on Russia than the Trump administration was, and, and the, the impression I get is is from the kind of appointments that uh, President uh, or nominations that uh, President Biden has been making. They're all people who've dealt with Russia in the past, and. Uh, People that I got an opportunity to interview um, when I was uh, the bureau chief in Moscow, um, and they're, you know, it's, it's a it's a bit of a stretch to call them hardliners, but um, they are, uh, you know, they they stand quite strong against uh, the corruption of the regime and also, you know, just the malign activity that Putin's regime has carried out you know, in the United States and other parts of the world, you know, the election interference, um, and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I think you're going to see a much stronger stand against that sort of thing. And, um, you know, maybe it will be in the form of sanctions. Maybe it'll be in the form of calling out Russia in public, in international forums and things like that. But I think it's going to be, it's going to be tougher. How effective it will be, we won't know. What do you think, Mr. Putin, and the Kremlin's goals are with 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 interference? You know, uh, election interference, uh, media interference. Uh, what's the overall goal? Do you think in in Western nations, including the U.S.? You know, uh, one thing about Putin is that he's a Soviet man in in many ways. You know, I mean, he grew up in the Soviet system uh, in Leningrad, and you know, under pretty straightened circumstances when he was a kid. Um, and you know, so he absorbed all the the Cold War attitudes against the United States and against the West, and I think he still has them. Um, he also blames the United States for the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and you know that's a grudge that um, he's held forever. Uh, so I think you know one one reason for the meddling and the the intrigue on the part of Russia is that Putin just wants to see the West weakened. You know, he sees the the West and the United States as a perennial uh, enemy, and uh, anything that weakens the United States creates chaos, makes the United States less effective as a world leader, is something that's, as far as he's concerned, very useful to him. Uh, some, uh, many, um, in, in the U.S. have held up this idea that America is an example, right? The shining city on the hill uh, sort of a thing. You've lived in many other countries, reported. Um, has that been a, a phenomenon? Do, do people look to America as a, you know, example, I guess, of democracy, of, uh, you know, ideals? You know, it, it depends on where you are and who you're talking to. You know, I would say that in my experience in Russia is that even opposition leaders there are not necessarily big admirers of the United States. 
Navalny himself, uh, you know, say, let's say that it were possible for Alexei Navalny uh, to be elected the president of Russia, it wouldn't necessarily be a, a kumbaya moment where all of a sudden Russia and the United States would be in harmony, because Navalny is actually a Russian nationalist, and he says so. Um, so he, uh, you know, he is, is more likely always to support what he sees as being the interests of Russia. Um, you know, I think if he were by some magic wand to become the president, he he would do everything he could to eliminate corruption. But uh, I think he'd still be, if not an adversary, at least, uh, you know, someone that uh, the United States and the EU would have to reckon with. Um, you know, I've I've seen among sort of more pro-Western people, especially younger people in, in Moscow and cities like that, um, an indication to admire the United States, not so much for its democracy, but for its other kinds of freedoms. You know, I mean, people like the idea that, you know, that we have freedom, real freedom of speech, you know, and, and real freedom of movement and that kind of thing. Um, but so that's where their, their admiration comes from. By the way, as far as you can tell, and keeping touch with people in Russia, how how has COVID hit uh, Russia? How's it been? Pretty severe, and you know one of the the problems with um, a fairly uh, controlling regime like Putin's is that uh, you know it's it's very difficult to tell what's going on because uh, they control what's reported in the news media and that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's very hard, for instance, to tell what the extent of COVID is and what the real death toll is. Um, the Putin's government just in the last month or two uh, released an updated death toll that was far, far higher than the original estimates were. And uh, I think it shocked a lot of people to realize how bad things really were there. Uh, the Russian medical system is adequate, but it's not, um, it's not world-class by any means. And that means that a lot more people die at home um, in a, and in ways that are a lot more difficult to account for statistically. So that's another reason why it's hard to know how bad it is. But what we do know is that uh, the Russian government didn't take um, all the public health measures it could have, didn't mandate mask wearing, for instance, uh, was not uh, very strong on social distancing. And so um, there's clearly been a lot of spread. Whether it's as, as great as the spread in the United States, we can't really tell. Well, looking to the future, um, specifically these uh, protests, do you, uh, do you think there'll be another round of protests regarding Navalny? I think there will be. Um, you know, I think people are, are energized. And, we're, of course, we're in the Russian winter right now. And uh, so it's... it's uh, it's just physically more difficult and uncomfortable to get out there and protest. But as we come into spring, um, you know, there may be, it may help the energy behind these kinds of protests. And it depends on how the Russian government reacts, too. If uh, the government overreacts, and especially if, um, if they condone police violence against the uh, protesters, that may uh, produce a, a level of outrage that will you know, increase the resistance and uh, increase the opposition. Um, if they 
do show trials and, and impose harsh uh, sentences against these people, that may tend to depress the, the opposition energy because, you know, people, people are shown that, um, you know, anybody who's part of these protests can be prosecuted, and severely so. I just have about three or four minutes, and I want to bring bring the discussion back to the United States and to media and to reporting. Um, in today's uh, splintered and splintering media landscape, um, it, what would you tell a young person? Is is journalism still a good career to go into? Yes. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily have answered that the same way maybe a dozen years ago when... Um, you know, it seemed to be fairly depressing news about, you know, newspapers um, struggling so much and, and various news outlets having such a hard time. Um, that hasn't changed. In fact, I think it's accelerated, um, meaning that a lot of traditional journalism jobs like newspaper jobs are going to be different. Um, people will find themselves reporting on the Internet more. People will find themselves reporting in uh, you know, pools of uh, of reporting situations. You know that that um, they'll be contributing to sort of uh, cooperative uh, reporting uh, organizations. Um, but local news is as crucial as ever, if not more so. Uh, one of the things that we lose when we lose local newspapers is um, accountability for local governments. Um, uh, solidarity among people who do community outreach, outreach and, and uh, community support. Um, all that, all that part of the fabric of our society is weakened, and so every place needs local news. We need to be able to talk to each other through local media, and if we can't do that, we're going to continue to fracture as a society. So I think there there's a big role for young journalists to come forward and help do that kind of reporting and that kind of accountability. The platforms that they do it on are going to be somewhat different, you know. They'll still be radio and they'll still be TV and there'll be a lot on the Internet, but um, all those platforms are going to be different and people are going to use them differently. But I still think that it's going to be a very exciting um, future for, for people who go into journalism. Well, here at the end, just a couple of minutes left, uh, let's do another plug for the Corey Flintoff Student Intern Fund at, <laughs> at, at UPR. Uh, t- tell us why people should give to this. Well, because it is a, you know, there, there's internships and there's internships, you know, and a lot of students wind up serving internships where they're uh, they're running for coffee and making copies and, and filing and that kind of thing. But this journalism internship is a real job. Uh, it is a, it offers real challenges and real responsibilities for the people who take it on. Um, you know, it's a grown-up job, and uh, you come away from it with um, experience that will be useful to you, not just in, in a future journalism job, but in many other ways that require that ability to ferret out, ferret out information. Um, and and uh, the internship actually pays a, a little money, not a lot, but, uh, uh, you know, I think the kind of money that this internship pays for the work is uh, more a form of respect than anything else. 
saying that your work is important, you are important, and uh, what you're learning is important. So that's why I'm, I'm so proud of this internship. Well, thank you for helping set set that up. Thank you for lending your name uh, to that and everything that you've been doing there. Uh, so the way to uh, contribute, anything that you can, will help. Um, you can go to upr.org, upr.org. And uh, we got an email from Steve who said, uh, easiest way to search for this is just Google UPR Flintoff, and it takes you right there. So search for UPR Flintoff. It'll take you right there and uh, give whatever you can. Uh, it'll be great. Uh, Corey Flintoff, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Oh, thank you. You know, I loved visiting Logan. Um, I, you know, I'm sort of fascinated by uh, your part of Utah. And, uh, you know, it's really fun to at least be able to connect with you over the phone. Well, it's it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thanks for all that you that you do. Um, Corey, Corey Flintoff, former NPR Moscow bureau chief, uh, former corresp- foreign correspondent. He uh, reported from just about everywhere, and uh, we're happy to have connection with him. I uh, hope you join us tomorrow. We'll be talking with Montana-based writer David Quammen. He says that COVID-19 is a reminder of viruses' destructive power, but that life as we know it would be impossible without them. We'll talk about his latest uh, cover story in National Geographic, all about viruses. We'll talk about, of course, COVID-19 as well. That's tomorrow. Thanks for listening today.